Open your Bibles again, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We come this morning to the end of our study of the genealogy in the first 17 verses before moving on to the birth of Jesus next Lord's Day. We read this beginning in verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, To the Messiah, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, again, help us as we open your word. Speak to us by it, Lord, even through all of these names, some of which we may find hard to pronounce, but are divinely inspired to be here in order to teach us a lesson, to point us to Christ, that we may exalt Him. And so we may may we do exactly that, As your Spirit illumines our minds and gives us understanding, change our hearts, Lord. May we see Christ and treasure Him in ways that we've not as we understand more of what you have done to bring Him to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. People often ask me what I find to be helpful in the Christian life. What what could I do to grow in my Christian life? And maybe that's a a good uh, question to ask here at the end of one year as we set out to embark upon a new year if the Lord 
gives us that time? How can I grow? What are some ways that I can grow? And one of the answers that I often give to people, and maybe I've given it to some of you, is that outside of the Scriptures, one of the most encouraging ways that you can grow and one of the most helpful things you can do as a believer is to read Christian biography. To, to study the lives and to see how God has worked in the lives of His people before us. Or maybe even among us still. But Christian biography is used of God in a unique way to instruct us and to teach us and to help us. But it isn't simply biography, but we must begin with biblical biography. Biblical biography matters, which means genealogies matter. This text before us, these 17 verses in Matthew's opening of his gospel, are nothing more than Christian, biblical biography by which we learn. And by which we see the hand of God working in the lives of people. We can study theology and we should. And we can study doctrine and we must. And we do. But there are times when we need to see it played out in someone's life so that we, if you're like me, who are a little dull, say, oh, I get it. I can see that. That is clear to me now what God is doing. And that is what we have before us in Matthew 1. In the previous weeks, we've considered the very first two emphasis that God places on this genealogy. The first is the royal kingship of Jesus through David. That's even repeated at the end of verse 6. We need to know that David was the king and that Jesus as the descendant of David is the king. Secondly, we looked at the promised one that has come in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and how God worked that out in this line and in this lineage fulfilled in Jesus. So this morning as we wrap up, and maybe you're saying, I don't know how we've stayed three weeks in a genealogy. Uh, We could stay longer, believe me. But as we come to a conclusion for our purposes at this point at least, I want us to come to one final consideration. Not only is Jesus the King who has come, not only is Jesus the promise who has come, but Jesus is the Savior who has come. All of these things being fulfilled in Him. The consideration before us in the lives of these people touches every single one of us. The the trials, the tribulations, the sins that they faced plague each one of us. And yet the miracle of the birth of Jesus is this. Jesus did not just come to be the Savior of sinners. Jesus came as Savior through sinners. Wrap your mind around that. There's a new Christmas hymn and the words, part of it goes something like this. Creator of Mary, now Mary's Son. We could say it this way. Creator of Mary the sinner, now Mary's Savior Son. Jesus Christ is not only the sinner of saviors, He is a sinner through a Savior through sinners as well. And that just gives a, a greater glory, doesn't it, to who He is? 
that, that though the, the, the line of his ancestors is as dysfunctional as one could possibly imagine, God is not deterred. God is not handcuffed. God is not concerned. In fact, God is glorified even more that it is that way than it had been if Jesus had come through a line of perfect saints. God illustrates something of His saving glory here in this list. If we were to read this list and you needed to describe this to your friend after church, you meet up with someone who's not here this morning or maybe someone from our church who's missing and they say, what was the sermon about? It's simple. Mankind stands in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. It's proven by His own family. And so we dive in this morning to this text. And I love what one commentator, Edward Klink, says about these 17 verses. He says, Matthew turns dull genealogy into evangelism and a birth story into a lexicon for the names of God. That Jesus Christ is our Savior. And as I've already quoted this morning, that great new hymn comes to my mind. Our sins, though they are many, His mercy is more. That's what I think of when I read this list. When I see how God has worked and navigated and put the people He wants us to focus on in this list, I just keep saying to myself, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. These people, those sinful, His mercy is more. That Though it would appear that God would wash His hands of these people, His mercy is more. Over and over in every name and every line. The mercies of God are more. And so I want to do something a little bit different. And tackling this, how do we take this apart? How do we see this? Well, if you if you go to seminary, they teach you that you know all good sermons need structure and they need points and an outline and so on and so on. Well, sometimes that just doesn't work, and so we're just going to go through the list. Okay, the list is the outline, and we'll work our way through the names uh, that we need to see and need to work through this morning to see how God powerfully communicates His grace, His mercy, and His glory in the lives of these people. Matthew now dives into, after his prologue in verse 1, dives into the lineage beginning in verse 2. Now let me just say to you, because some of you might be looking at this and you're saying, wait a minute, that is not nearly enough names to go from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And you're right. Not every name, not every descendant is listed here, but key descendants that are meant to make a point. Okay, so just understand that Matthew didn't mess up. The Bible's not messed up. This is strategic and this has a point to it as to being what it is and why it is the way it is. Matthew begins with Abraham in verse 2. Jesus is the promised descendant as Daniel read of Abraham. He is the one in whom, as we saw last week, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Not just the Jewish descendants of Abraham, but all the world. 
But as we meet Abraham, there is nothing in Abraham's life that would tell us this is a man whom God is going to use. He's not from a Christian family. He's not a man who is particularly courageous. He's not a man who has a a, a PhD in Christian theology. Abraham is a, a pagan man living in a pagan land that even after God calls him out of the land of Ur, demonstrates that he stands in daily need of God. And if God does not intervene in the life of Abraham, Abraham will soon destroy himself. He offers up his wife on more than one occasion so that he himself is spared. He lies He cavorts. He seeks to fulfill God's promises by man's means. That's never a good solution. He seeks to take all that God is and all that God has said and he tends to reduce it down to something he can control and he can understand. And we look at his life and it it, it is a roller coaster. There are high points where we think surely Abraham has arrived Surely his sanctification has now reached a point where he won't go backwards and then backward down the hill goes Abraham. Lapses of faith. At times even seemingly immoral things. Certainly cowardly things. And yet this is where the lineage of Jesus begins. God begins with imperfect men. Maybe some of the most imperfect. So that His glory and His power and His majesty and His his sovereignty is magnified all the more. Then we come quickly to Jacob. Isaac is somewhat of a carbon copy of his father. He's important and certainly in continuing on the line, but he doesn't seem to have as much vice and back and forth as Abraham did, certainly not as much as his son Jacob does. We come down to Jacob, through Isaac, uh, the grandson of Abraham. And here's a man whose very name means a deceiver. One whose character is that of deception. Certainly that wouldn't be the the progenitor of the Messiah. Certainly the Messiah is not going to come from a a line of cheats, is he? Well, that's exactly what he does. Jacob cheats, Jacob lies, Jacob steals. And he's done it so many times. And And he challenges God. He's not a man of faith. He doesn't have one of those miraculous conversion experiences like the Apostle Paul who falls down on the road to Damascus and says, Yes, Lord. You'll remember Jacob encounters God in a night vision and he tells God, Well, maybe. If you do these things, then I'll do it. How many of you have ever had your children attempt to make an ultimatum to you? Doesn't go well, does it? Why? We're the authority. Jacob, in essence, early on, sticks his fist in God's face and says, well, maybe you'll be, if I let you. 
If you'll bless me, then I'll think about it. Jacob, as a man, is beset with selfishness and with pride, and yet God chooses to make him, even in theft, the progenitor of the Messiah's line. Unbelievable. We could very well say Jacob doesn't belong here, not by normal human means. It was his brother Esau. Jacob steals it and somehow, in God's wonderful providence and sovereignty, God intended it for it to be exactly that way so that God receives greater honor by overcoming the sin of Jacob. And then there's Judah, Jacob's son. We talked about him for those of you who were here in the first hour, and I ask you to remember his name. Jacob's oldest son is Reuben, and then came Simeon, and then came Levi. All of them are discredited as leaders, as the ones who would take Jacob's mantle for the family and lead the family. Why? Well, Reuben because of incest. Simeon and Levi because of cold-blooded murder. God says they won't rule, but Judah will. And Judah will become, of Jacob's twelve sons, Judah will become the fountainhead of the Messiah's line. You think, oh, that's nice. In fact, I have a sign in my house that says, that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. How nice. What a lovely name. What a lovely lineage. Judah. Until you meet Judah. And men, it'd be far better for you to meet Judah than your wife. Because Judah is a man who is beset with the sin of lust. In his old age, he employs prostitute at least he thinks she is until he comes to learn later that it's his daughter-in-law and by that immoral relationship with something he believed to be wrong but not that wrong he fathers two children Perez and Hezron dishonoring God dishonoring the family name he becomes the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And so one of these sons is they wrestle as they come out. And sounds an awful lot like Jacob and Esau. We've got brothers in tension, brothers in crisis. And one supplants the other, even in the womb. Tamar bears these sons. These sons, Perez becomes the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. The line continues. And let's not miss the point here with Judah. Judah is not only a wicked man, but his daughter-in-law Tamar is no woman that you'd want your son to marry either. She is a Canaanite. She is a a pagan idolater. She has no problems reducing herself to harlotry in order to get what she wants. She is grotesquely pragmatic. 
whatever it takes to get what I want, that's what I'm going to do. So she has no problem. She has no morals, it would seem. And for the first time, we find this woman in the line of Jesus who figures prominently. That's unique in itself to be a woman in a genealogy in that time, but to be a Gentile woman in a Jewish genealogy is unheard of. You know, here is one we would look at and say, that is not at all how I would have written the story. But it's how God wrote it. In fact, it is not just Tamar, but as we work our way down to verse 5, we find that there is another woman of ill repute. Another Gentile woman by the name of Rahab. God has a way, doesn't He, in this list of, of trying to take what, what mankind says would be the worst and would certainly be the nail in the coffin and nothing good can ever come from this. And God says, no, that's exactly the kind of people I work with. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. God is on a mission to demonstrate His character of mercy through His Son Jesus. He is not working among righteous people for there are no righteous people. That's the point. Tamar and Rahab are illustrations of just how broad and glorious the promise to Abraham was already. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation are being brought into the fold. Already. You don't even have to wait to Revelation to see this. It begins now. God begins to bring them in. And then, uh, unless we think that somehow it's this sort of sin and this sort of thing is relegated to pagan women who would behave in this way, we find Bathsheba. Not Canaanite. She's Jewish, but immoral nonetheless. She is in the line of Jesus. But backing up again to verse 4, Ram becomes the father of Amenadab. Some of these names we know not nearly as much about. Through Perez, Perez fathers Hezron. Hezron becomes the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Hezron is only mentioned in Genesis 46.12 as he goes into Egypt at the time of the children of Israel's migration to Egypt. Ram is simply a, a, a mark in the chain. He's another link. We don't know much about him. But what we do know, and I mentioned this earlier to you, that these are not all the names that occur in the lineage of Jesus. There is a 400-year gap between Perez and Amenadab. That's a long time. A lot of people can live in 400 years. But Amenadab fathers Nashon, and Nashon becomes a, a seminal figurehead. He becomes a very important person in the tribe of Judah. In fact, he is one of the leaders in Numbers chapter 10 that leads Israel into the land of Canaan in the conquest. But out of that relationship, out of that man, out of his lineage, comes Solomon, and Solomon becomes the father of Boaz. And Boaz 
by Rahab. Again, emphasizing the nature of God using the most humanly impossible people to bring about the Savior for those people. Salmon and Rahab. Rahab is used of God in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. And she hides the spies and she becomes a God-fearing proselyte of Yahweh. She becomes a woman of faith. How important is, is Rahab? Well, she's not just mentioned here. She's mentioned in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Verse 31, by faith Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She figures prominently in the New Testament, not just here, but in the writing of, uh, of Hebrews and of James. Boaz takes for himself a wife of the Moabite tribe, one of Israel's greatest enemies. They hate the Israelites. Though they are next door neighbors, they are not at all friendly towards one another. They're pagan. They are a horrible society. In fact, we come to understand from the book of Ruth, who is mentioned here, that those two Israelite boys that initially took her and her counterpart as wives did not do so in a very kind way. The, the word is that they seized them by force. And so you have a pagan woman married to, again, immoral and ungodly men still in the line of Jesus. They don't ultimately come the progenitors of that line. Boaz, as their distant relative, does. And out of that relationship comes Obed, the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David. And in Isaiah 11, Jesse is mentioned as being the, the stump, the root of this line. Though it is cut down and though it is pared back and though it is seemingly insignificant and unimportant and impossible from Jesse's stump, from his root, will come the branch that becomes the Messiah. Then there's David, the king. We know all about him, don't we? He's royal. He begins well. But he lapses in the middle. And not only does he become an immoral man, he becomes a murdering man. These are Jesus' relatives. These are the people that, that stand in direct line who have produced both Jesus' legal father, Joseph, and his biological mother, Mary. Both have descended from this line. And it's not a pretty line. This is not a family reunion that you... Meet your future spouse and can't wait to take them to meet the rest of the family. You don't want to do that with these people. In fact, you might be very suspicious of them that you may not even make it out alive if they don't like you. Notice how Solomon's descent is explained. 
David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Matthew includes that little detail. He's just reminding you, oh yeah, not only was the relationship between David and Bathsheba not something to be proud of, but what followed it was even worse. She had been the wife of Uriah. Well, why is she not the wife of Uriah anymore? Oh, the king had him killed. It's very quickly seen that then in Solomon's life, he's certainly not the hope. Solomon's certainly not going to be the, the promised seed that we have long awaited for from this line, is he? See, Solomon sells out quicker than just about any of them. He begins well, but very quickly becomes enamored with women. Women from other countries who bring their gods. A thousand of them. And Solomon allows that door to open so that the offspring he will produce, as we see in the rest of this line, are not necessarily dedicated to the worship of Yahweh because mom wasn't. Dad, yeah, nominally says he is. But mom, with whom I spend most of my time, she's introduced me to Baal and Asheroth and all the other gods that have come from the various parts of the world that dad has gone on his conquest to. Solomon's clearly not going to be that seed that sits on the throne of his father. Out of Solomon, we find Rehoboam and Abijah and Joram. In fact, it is in the life of Abijah, again now moving a little more quickly through these names. <clears throat> Abijah becomes the cause of the rebellion of the northern ten tribes that ends up dividing the nation. He was easily conquered because of his lavish lifestyle seen in his father. He begins to tax the people exorbitantly in order to fund himself, in order to carry on what he wants until he so weakens the people and so causes a rebellion that they're easily taken captive. And we look at this and we say, these poor kids, Rehoboam, Abijah, not not necessarily great. And one of the things that we find repeated in this line is that there are flashes of brilliance, though. There are people who, despite all odds, end up loving and serving God. And we find the man Asa, Abijah's son. Here's the guy that splits the kingdom. Here's the guy that, that is involved in all sorts of pagan idolatry. And his son becomes a son who shuns all of that and honors God who turns back to Yahweh, and for 35 years, he rules and there is peace in Judah. Among the southern two tribes, there is peace, regardless of all the carnage that his father had brought upon the people. And it gives us hope as we come up for air with a few of these names, that there is hope, God is still at work. God's righteousness is still 
saving and it still has a plan. Jehoshaphat, like Asa, promoted righteousness among the people of God. He becomes somewhat of an evangelist to turn the hearts of the people away from the idols and back to the Lord. Jehoshaphat, however, becomes the father of Jehoram. Now, Jehoshaphat was a great man. Jehoshaphat did many good things, but Jehoshaphat had an Achilles heel. He did not guard the heart of his son as to who his son married. He marries his son Jehoram to the ungodly daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah is her name. You might remember her. And rather than follow the way of his father, Jehoram follows the wickedness of Ahab, Jezebel, and Athaliah. In fact, it gets so dark and so bad that in order to maintain his position of royalty, he has his brothers, or he he rather murders his own brothers, 2 Chronicles 21, in order to maintain control of the throne. You think the Roman Caesars were something? They've got nothing on the kings of Judah and Israel. Murders his own brothers. And we read of three more wicked kings uh, in, in the Old Testament that come between Jehoram and Uzziah. A very long period of wickedness, not mentioned here, but is certainly uh, played out in the book of Chronicles. And so at last we come to Uzziah again, a king whose death is recounted by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In a time of absolute wickedness, and in a time of absolute apostasy and backsliding, God sends a prophet, Isaiah, because he takes Uzziah's life. Uzziah started well, but fell into the same patterns of his forefathers, and God gives him leprosy. And he dies a leper. And through it all, God raises up a prophet. Uzziah had a son by the name of Jotham. Jotham is the contemporary king of the prophets Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah. He was a good king who did much good. He instituted laws that banned the worship of idols. He removed all the high places of worship. But there were certain altars and certain groves that he did not remove and he allowed some of the idols to remain that are quickly discovered by subsequent generations. And Israel, or Judah, I should say, goes back into idolatry. We come upon his descendant by the name of Ahaz. He was one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 3, Ahaz is so enamored with the foreign gods that he institutes and brings in the practice of child sacrifice to Judah. The slaughter of children. Not pre-born, post-born. Not that there's a difference but stripping children from the, eyes, the arms of their mothers to be placed into the burning arms of the gods of Molech. 
to be burned in the fire. And it's during his reign that Assyria comes for a period of time, 2 Kings 16, and takes dominion over Judah, and they lose their freedoms. This is God's declaration of anathema upon the rule of Ahaz. To him is born Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, we all know, he institutes great reforms. Hezekiah reinstitutes the worship of Yahweh. But Hezekiah is a pragmatist. Hezekiah doesn't think that they can make it with Yahweh alone and so secretly enters into a pact with Babylon. And in order to pay the the tribute to Babylon, after Judah quickly runs out of money, Hezekiah has to strip the gold plating from off of the temple doors that his ancestor Solomon had built in all of its glory. He has to strip the gold out of the temple where Yahweh is worshipped in order to pay the tribute to the Babylonians. Begins well, but he falls prey to fear and to pragmatism and to making alliances God warned him not to make. Then comes Manasseh. Manasseh, like his grandfather, did wickedly. 2 Kings 21, 11-18. He, he involves himself and institutes a practice of witchcraft. He involves himself in the occult, we would say today. So grotesque is Manasseh that he offers up his own child in child sacrifice. Burns him alive to appease a God that does not even exist. His mind is depraved. He is then besieged by the nation of Assyria as they sweep down and take control once again of Judah. And we get to this point and we're we're all thinking, why would God bother? Why would God care? If I were God, I would just destroy them all and be done with it. I mean, to murder your own child to involve yourself in witchcraft and all that that brings with it. Surely there's no hope. But even before Jesus arrives on the scene, God demonstrates what this genealogy is all about. And it is this, that He is a God of mercy. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, this king Manasseh repents. And he turns back to God. And God does not say to Manasseh, no, sorry. You've crossed a bridge too far. You've acted too wickedly. No, God receives his repentance. And he restores Manasseh. Manasseh begins the work then of instituting reforms and rebuilding much of David's city that had been destroyed been destroyed by the Assyrians. Can you ever be too far gone? Manasseh says no. Manasseh says, you know, God can forgive anything. I'm living proof of that. 
Shortly after him comes Ammon. Ammon returns to, di- to idolatry and wickedness. But then comes Josiah. Josiah, the greatest reformer that Israel ever knew. He's crowned king at the age of eight, and he rediscovers the law. He, he says, we're going to reinstitute temple worship. We're going to restore the temple to its previous glory. And as they are renovating the temple, Josiah comes upon the law of God that had been buried and hidden in the temple. And he brings it out, and he begins to read the law of God to the people. And there's great revival among Judah because God has spoken yet again. He hasn't killed them. No, rather, he's revived them. Josiah institutes amazing reform. But here again, very quickly, on the heels of Josiah's grandeur comes Jeconiah. Three kings, three generations exist between Josiah and Jeconiah. But Jeconiah is such an evil king. He is such a wicked ruler that God punishes Jeconiah by stripping from him the right to be the progenitor of David's successor. And in Jeremiah 22, we read that God says to Jeconiah, no seed of yours will sit on the throne of David. And at this point we say, it's over. It's over. Because if Jesus comes from Jeconiah... Then, then how is any of this true? How is any of it true? Well, it's true in this because it is Joseph's line that we're talking about here. And Joseph did not produce Jesus. The Holy Spirit did. Joseph is the adoptive father. But in this economy and in the way that things work in this world, adoption was as good as physical birth. Yeah, sure, Jeconiah, your seed's not going to sit on the throne of David. And don't you know, not only was Satan rejoicing when Herod started slaughtering babies, thinking, this is it. We're done here. He'd done that with Jeconiah too. When he hears God pronounce a curse and say, no seed, Jeconiah, of yours will sit on the throne of David, he's thinking, got him. It's over. I've interrupted the line. No promise, no king. It's done. But God circumvents it, doesn't He? No matter how wicked men are, God is gloriously gracious and merciful. God is sovereign to bring about this Savior. It's under Jeconiah that Babylonian captivity begins. When the nation of Judah is led out of the land and taken captive into Babylon. And the decay of lineages begins really in earnest here. We begin to lose track of who is descended from whom. Not totally, that doesn't happen until AD 70, but it begins here. When records are destroyed and families are separated and when there is no real knowledge of who came from where. Jeconiah becomes the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel then becomes the legal predecessor of Joseph after the curse on his father. After captivity, it is Shealtiel's line that comes back to the land and 
through whom Joseph comes. There's Zerubbabel. He's the governor. He's the king appointed by the Persians. In Zechariah chapter 4, who comes back to the, to, to the land of Judah, back to Jerusalem in order to reconstruct and rebuild along with Nehemiah and Ezra. Nine kings then, covering 500 years, about whom really we have no details, then follow Zerubbabel. 500 years. And they weren't good years. They weren't prosperous years. We can only assume that they continued in the ways of their fathers. Patterns of seeming revival and then falling away. But falling away to the point that they are really for all practical purposes overtaken by anyone who wants them. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, and by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Romans. They're just, they're, their gates are torn down. There's nothing left to defend them any longer because of their wickedness. And I want you to, to note that not only is it these 500 years of these kings, but even as the, the end of that 500 years comes to a fulfillment, there are 400 years where God simply stops speaking. There are no prophets. There is no one to proclaim the salvation and the glory of God to these people who stand so desperately in need of a word of salvation from the Lord. He's silent. I recently was listening to an exchange between a, a, a preacher that I greatly admire and a pastor who was somewhat downtrodden and, and he was asking, why is it? Why is it that I can't find a church to go pastor? And I never really thought about it in terms of this. Because I usually think about it in terms of churches saying, why can't we find a pastor who will preach the truth? And then here's a pastor who's willing to proclaim the truth. And then why can't I find a church that wants to hear the truth? And the older pastor said to him, it may be God's judgment that he ceases to send preachers and prophets to a nation. He did it once to Israel. There weren't many who would speak up. It was just a time of silence. God is not speaking to His people like He did for 400 years. This genealogy, this is what lays upon the people of Judah. It is dark and it is dreary and it is burdensome. And then, like a light piercing the darkest night, Matthew opens with chapter 1. And very briefly, he says, do you all remember what has come before you? Do you remember the wickedness and the sin and the grotesqueness and all the times that you thought God will never deal with us again? Do you remember 400 years when I did not speak? Well, now I have spoken. And it is not by prophets and it is not by mere words. I speak, as Hebrews 1 says, through one 
who is my son. No mere prophet. Matthew simply opens with the birth of God Himself. After all of that, the culmination is in verse 16 of this lineage. Jacob was the father, or let's say it this way, Jacob fathered Joseph. That's how we should really read everything that has come before. He fathered him through natural biological process. He fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. But, notice that it is never mentioned that Joseph fathered Jesus. Rather, Joseph is attached to Mary. And Mary is the one who is credited with the human side of the birth. Not Joseph. Bypassing this line of sin that had come from Joseph, bypassing these dysfunctional relatives, bypassing all of this, comes Jesus by Mary, and He is the Messiah. And what has He come to do? Verse 21, save His people from their sins. Not from Assyrian kings, not from Babylonian kings, not from Roman kings. He has come to save His people from the tyranny of sin. God has spoken. And He has spoken completely that His Son, void of all sin, void of fatherly human descent, without sin He has come to bear the sins of His people. He is not like anyone else in this list. And yet He has fulfilled every requirement from this list to be the descendant of David in every single way. And it all culminates in this, that because He is Messiah and because He he is pure and without sin and without human normal, fatherly generation, He is able to do what He said He would do. Save His people from their sin. William Hendrickson, commentator who's been with the Lord for a long time now in his commentary, comments on verse 17 by saying there's something here that we should consider. That God in choosing to construct this genealogy in the way He has, has done so to the Jewish mind. And remember, Matthew's writing to Jewish uh, readers. They would have immediately picked up on this. And what Hendrickson points out, what might not be clear to us, but would have been clear to them, is that God intentionally uses the number seven, the number of completion, the number of perfection, in order to bring this about. Now, we need to be careful with numerology. We don't need to just go crazy with numbers in the Bible. But they do at times mean, and this is one of those times. The number seven indicates the perfection of God. The completeness of God. God is finished. God is not going to do anything else. This is as perfect as it gets. 
And notice what we have. We have three sets of 14, which are a doubling of the number 7. It's perfect, perfect. It's perfect, perfect. It's perfect, perfect. Until we realize then that 14 times 3 yields 42, which is another derivative of the number 7, from which we have six sets here that then yield a seventh, which is the perfection, which is Jesus. Jesus is the completion of God's redeeming work. And so as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we remember Scripture's teaching on the birth of Jesus, we have a Messiah who has come with the express purpose of salvation. Nothing else. He will be a king because He saves as a king. He is the promised fulfillment who is near to us because He comes to save. He is the Savior for all the world. And there's nothing that can deter God from saving sinners whom He has determined to save. Not liars. Not cheats. Not murderers, not adulterers, not prostitutes, not people who murdered their own children for occultic practice. Nothing stops God from His saving work. Period. Full stop. No excuses, no exceptions. God saves. And if you... Look at Matthew 1. That is how you must read this biography. God saves. We read the great missionary biographies. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John Payton, David Livingston, C.T. Studd. All of, the, all of the missionaries we love to read about. And we say, wow, look what God did. Look, look God saved, you know, a hundred people in their, their ministry. And wow, isn't that awesome? Have you read Matthew 1? Look who God has saved. Not just a few people, but people from all the nations of the world now. Because the Savior has come. It's no, no wonder then, right, that we sing joy to the world. Imagine the world without the Savior. It looks like this mess. But look at the world with the Savior. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kind of sinner, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God's final word. God's complete word. Let's remember that, all right? The King has come, the promise has come, and now the Savior has come. And He is for us. He's for all who will believe on His name. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. Thank You for this great story of redemption. These tales of tragedy that are redeemed and used by Your good hand. 
by Your gracious hand, by Your mercy in Jesus. Who has come to save His people from their sins. Father, cause us to remember what a tyranny we are born into. Cause us to remember what what type of slavery we are born under. So that we might more fully appreciate what it is Christ has come and has accomplished for us who believe. And so Lord, may we give this passage great consideration. May, May You even spark in us a hunger to read Kings and Chronicles. To learn more about the contrast between Your righteousness and the sin of men out of which You have redeemed us all. May Christ be praised. May He be trusted. As we go throughout this holiday season, may we not lose, Lord, don't let us lose the focus on what this is about. It's not just about a baby. It's about a triumphant Savior. We love You. Thank You for bringing this to our attention. Thank You for preserving it in Your Word for us. Grant us memory to recall this. Grant us faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.